I'll invite you to turn with me to Matthew chapter 5, verse 17, as we continue through this Sermon on the Mount. We're going to cover verses 17 to 20 today. So we'll begin by reading that together. Of course, all of Scripture is breathed out by God. The red letters are not more significant than the other parts of it. But it is remarkable still to consider that this is, this is our Lord Jesus uh, who spoke these words. So the Word of God says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. If you consider and think about the historic setting of these words, of this Sermon on the Mount that we're looking at, of the moment in time in which this teaching occurred, it was a time of transition between the Old Covenant that God had made with Israel at Sinai, a time of transition from that to this new covenant that Jesus came to inaugurate in his blood. Jesus was himself as the eternal son who came to earth as a man. He was born as a man under the law covenant as a Jew. But he also began in his teaching and instruction to announce some new things such as his teaching that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He taught that entrance into this kingdom was not automatic just because you were an Israelite. He was, in fact, critical of many of the Jewish leaders, which would have seemed very odd. Who is this man? Why is he attacking our leaders who supposedly believe the scriptures. And so with Jesus came a time of fulfillment. And as Jesus went about his earthly ministry, this teaching, this reality, brought him into conflict with other people, especially the religious leaders of his day. And while Matthew hasn't yet, up until this point in chapter 5, he has not yet recorded major conflicts with Jesus and the scribes and Pharisees, we know that that is yet coming throughout the Gospel of Matthew in later chapters. And even apart from ill motives of some of these men, it could be easy to misunderstand what it was that Jesus was saying and teaching and doing. What exactly was he getting at? In his criticism of the Jews, and particularly the leaders of the Jews, the question could easily arise, is he talking against Abraham, our father Abraham, 
After all, the scribes, the Pharisees, they, they claim to be teaching what Abraham taught. They, they say they hold to the faith of Abraham. And Jesus is criticizing them. So is he also then criticizing Abraham? What is going on here? Likewise, the same with Moses. Is Jesus against the law itself? When he speaks of this temple being thrown down, when he speaks of later on in Matthew of the temple being destroyed, is he against Moses? Is he against the temple? Is he therefore against the whole of scripture that's been handed down? Is he rendering all of that stuff void and useless? One might therefore have a a reasonable or genuine concern or question. On the other hand, there are others who might equally seize upon this and say, yes, away with all that, away with the law, away with all this difficulty, this burdensome way. That's too strict. It's too hard. It's bad. Away with it. We need an easier way. And such might then relish sinfulness. And even today, confusion still exists about what it was that Jesus was coming to do and what exactly his relationship is or was to all that had come before him in the Old Testament. There was, some of you will recall, I don't know, it's probably a few years ago now, one American preacher who came under fire for suggesting that we need to unhitch his word, the Christian faith from the Jewish scriptures, from the Old Testament, saying that this is what Paul had elected to do and that we likewise must do the same. Other questions arise. Is the gospel of God's grace that we find in the New Testament a plan B? Because plan A with Israel was not really working out. The law wasn't really working out. Is it a separate plan? from Old Testament stuff, from God's working with the nation of Israel, just totally separate. Maybe Jesus came to rescue religion and people from that oppressive, heavy-handed, Old Testament God with his harsh, judgmental ways, it seems. Maybe Jesus is here to lessen God's demand upon us, right? That's... That demand is just too high, so let's just bring that bar down a little bit so more people can get across the line. Maybe our sin really isn't all that bad after all. Now, as we think about the Old Testament and the New and the relationship between the two, admittedly, we must be honest, there are some difficult matters when we look at this relationship. But there are some things, some matters that are very clear and must be asserted. Jesus dealt frequently with this very issue, how his coming fit with all that had come before him, how it accorded with the Old Testament scriptures. And yet he was continually in his earthly ministry and life, continually and maliciously charged with speaking against Moses, against the law, against the temple. Again, I said Jesus deals with this and addresses this frequently, including in the verses that we just read. And what I want to draw your attention to from this 
is that Jesus came to fulfill the Old Testament scriptures and bring about true righteousness in his people. Jesus came to fulfill the Old Testament scriptures and bring about a true righteousness in his people. So the first point of our outline is just what I said. Jesus came to fulfill the Old Testament scriptures. He says this quite plainly and clearly. Now, if we think back to the beginning of the chapter, the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount and the Beatitudes, we've seen Jesus has just outlined the character of those who are in the kingdom of heaven. And so we should acknowledge that as Jesus does this, he is at least in some way giving a new description of those who are the true people of God. Right? Absent so far has been any statement about being circumcised, about temple sacrifices, etc. And so again, one could wonder what, what's going on here. And so he says, verse 17, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Jesus clarifies that although there is newness at his arrival, it is not in fact something that is unhitched from that which has come before. In fact, he's stating clearly here the opposite. This is not any sort of, hey, don't worry about all that stuff that's come before, that old stuff, it's too hard. There was an old, old time with stuffier people who just were real picky about all these things. You know, I've got something new, something a little better and easier for you. So just forget about all that stuff. That's not what he do, he's doing. He has not come to abolish it. He's not come to render it null and void. Uh, he isn't doing away with it, repealing it all, or is he, nor is he destroying it. He did not come to abolish it. Specifically, he's speaking of, as he says, the law and the prophets. And this is a reference to the whole canon of the Old Testament scriptures. The books of Moses, the law, the first five books, and the rest of the books summed up as the prophets. This is common language in the New Testament and the Old, but we see it a number of times in the New. Jesus is saying he did not come to abolish these things. Now, this doesn't mean that there's no change upon Jesus' arrival. There is change. I think he's already communicating this reality, and he will continue to. He has come, after all, to establish the new covenant in his blood. We read about just a brief section about a prophecy about that new covenant God would make from Jeremiah 31. He has come to bring that about. There's clearly newness here. Change will necessarily come. The book of Hebrews is a great book to, that talks about this change. Chapter 7, verse 12 tells us it was necessary for there to be some change. But the way to think of it is with this word fulfillment, not the word abolish. Jesus came to fulfill the law and the prophets. And so a key to understanding this is understanding that the Old Testament scriptures point in different ways, in various ways, to the Lord Jesus. 
and to what he, now from our perspective in time, has come and accomplished in his earthly life and ministry and what he will yet return and finish when the time is right. You remember at the end of Luke, in chapter 24, there's a couple of disciples that are on the road to Emmaus. They're perplexed about the events that have taken place and this stranger joins them and they don't realize it's the risen Lord Jesus. And after a while, Jesus reveals himself to them. And it says in verse 27, beginning with Moses and all the prophets. So again, that's the law, Moses and all the prophets. He interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. He goes through, what kind of a study would that have been? He walks through as only he probably could do and instructs these disciples about how these scriptures pointed to him. And they respond later, did not our hearts burn within us when he did this? In 2 Corinthians 1 and verse 20, Paul says it like this, speaking of the Old Testament and Jesus' fulfillment of it, for all the promises of God find their yes in him. All the promises of God find their yes in him. The promises that God made in the Old Testament in some way find their fulfillment, their yes in Christ Jesus. This is no afterthought. This is no plan B of any sort. Jesus fulfills the scriptures and he does this in various ways. Obviously, if we think about the law and its demands upon mankind, the demand of perfect obedience, Jesus has obviously come and fulfilled that. He has kept the law on behalf of those that he came to save. We also think of how he is the fulfillment of very specific prophecies. The fact that he was born in Bethlehem. The fact that he is the offspring, the, the greater son of David, prophesied all throughout the Old Testament. He also fulfills the different types that we find in the Old Testament which we find, we find a lot of them in the law, in the first five books of the Bible. Of course, we read the time of the Exodus of the Passover lamb that was, blood was shed and the angel of death would pass over the houses that had the blood upon their doorposts. Jesus has come. The Passover lamb, as Peter says, he has shed his blood that all who are covered by his blood would be saved from the judgment of God. He is the greater Passover lamb who satisfies eternally the wrath of God for his people. Think of the temple. Before that, the tabernacle, all the instructions given to Moses and passed on. Of the temple, of the, the sacrifices that would be offered. Of the priesthood. All of these were told in scripture in Colossians and other places are just a shadow a shadow of something greater to come. Jesus fulfills these things as the great high priest who offered not the blood of bulls and goats, but his own blood. He offered his own self to God to secure not a temporary covering for sin, but eternal redemption and a cleansing of, a con of the conscience for all who believe in him. 
And as we looked at last week, if you were here from Psalm 114, Jesus is the one who came to bring about a greater exodus, not from enslavement to just another nation, but an exodus from enslavement to sin, enslavement to death and to Satan. And he is the one who brings his people into the greater Canaan, the new creation, offering eternal rest. Again, just read the other day from John chapter 6 as well, when Jesus talks there of manna in the wilderness. And he says, I am the true bread that has come down. The, the Israelites ate the manna in the wilderness and they were sustained one day at a time as they collected this manna miraculously given to them. Jesus saying, I'm the greater manna, the spiritual manna. If you feed upon me, you believe in me, you will never die. You will live eternally. These are just, this is just a very brief snapshot of the various ways that the Old Testament is pointing to Christ and how he has come to bring about its fulfillment. It's about him. Our triune God has had one plan from before the foundations of the world. One plan of redemption. It centers on this work of the eternal Son of God who has come as a man, the Lord Jesus Christ. All the promises of God find their yes in him. And so he says, I have not come to abolish the law, far from it, but to fulfill it. And he continues, verse 18, For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. The reason Jesus has not come to abolish the law, to abolish the Old Testament, is because it has to come to pass. It must come to pass. It must be accomplished. Heaven and, heaven and earth would sooner pass away than for God's word to pass away. Everything God has said, everything he has declared, every promise he has made must assuredly come to pass. It must come about. All of it must be accomplished. So perish the thought that Christ would come and, for, and abolish it. It's not possible that he could just, nah, you don't need that. Not important. Now here in verse 18, instead of mentioning the law and the prophets like he does in verse 17, he just simply mentions the law. That the smallest letter, the smallest stroke of the pen from the law will not pass away until all is accomplished. Now, it could be here that the law is just shorthand for the entirety of the Old Testament scriptures. It is commonly used that way. It could also just simply refer to the five books of Moses specifically he has in mind here. It could also reveal to the Ten Commandments. Sometimes the law is referring, used to just refer to the Ten Commandments. I think what he's speaking of here, though, is at very least the five books of Moses and possibly the entirety of the Old Testament scriptures still. Regardless, both the law and the prophets contain promises that God must keep, that Jesus himself must fulfill. We might just think of the prophets as predicting 
Jesus coming. But it is not just the prophets. The law, the entirety of the first five books are screaming and pointing towards the Lord Jesus Christ. Again, we've already talked about some of the types that we find in the Old Testament that prefigure and picture what Jesus would come and do. Jesus himself said in John 5, 46, For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. I'm not making this up that Moses is writing about Jesus. Jesus tells us this. The Old Testament cannot simply be cast aside since it is forever God's word in which he has revealed himself to man and in which he has made certain promises and certain declarations that must surely come to pass. So it cannot be that Jesus would come and simply set it aside. Again, as we think about this from our perspective in our day today, we can look backward on Jesus coming and his life, his death, his resurrection, and how he fulfills so many of the Old Testament promises, even what the New Testament speaks of Christ's intercession now, his high priestly role as he continues to intercede for those he has offered himself for. We can see how he fulfills so many of these Old Testament promises. And yet, if we think about some of the things that the Old Testament speaks of that need to come to pass, they haven't yet come to pass. So the curse for sin that we find in Genesis chapter 3 has not yet been entirely repealed, has it? It has not yet been finally and completely overthrown. Death is still around us. Sin is still here. The curse, we still feel it. We experience it. And yet Genesis 3.15 makes a promise of the one who would come and crush the head of the serpent, destroy this Satan, the devil, repeal this curse. And Jesus has come and has indeed struck the death blow, but the final undoing of Satan is yet to come. Further, the enemies of the son of David, we know, are not yet entirely under his feet. The saints do not yet dwell in the fullness of the new creation, in the new creation glory that we read about throughout the Old Testament that's being pointed ahead to. There is yet more to be accomplished. And as long as this is the case, the Old Testament remains authoritative. It is nothing less than the Word of God, which points us ultimately to Christ and to Christ's work. The coming of Christ, the New Testament ministry of the gospel, is not in any way any sort of plan B. Nor is it a surprise, as if the Old Testament didn't see this coming. There are those who who argue this way. But it is not in keeping with what Jesus says, nor with how the New Testament writers are interpreting the Old Testament when they quote it. This, that Jesus does, what Jesus has come to accomplish and will accomplish yet, 
has always been the singular plan of our triune God. He is the promised offspring of Abraham from Genesis 12, who would bring about blessing, not just for the Jewish nation, for the Israelites, but for all the families of the earth, for all of the nations of the earth. This gospel that goes out now and has reached all the way here of all places is always God's plan. The Bible is a unified book. It tells a unified story. It is not a a mash of random texts. This is not how Jesus understood it. This is not how any of the New Testament writers understood it. It's a book that is unified with God as the ultimate author, centering on the work of the Lord Jesus Christ in the gospel, sent by the Father to redeem a people. The Old Testament continues today as Christian scripture. It's a a Christian book. It's not just a Jewish book. You should not think of it that way. It teaches us about and points us to Christ. Now again, we can admit that it is hard sometimes to put it all together. The Bible does speak of this as the mystery of Christ that's not fully revealed throughout the Old Testament until Christ arrives. It can be difficult to put it all together to know how to apply the Old Testament scriptures as new covenant believers. But we will never get there if we think that it is somehow not really for us. But really just concerned people back then. 1 Peter 1.12 Peter tells us that the prophets of old they had an awareness that what they wrote was in service to generations that would come after them for whom greater clarity would be given. And that includes you and me. We live on the other side of Christ's coming and the mystery of the Old Testament is indeed revealed in him. This is what Jesus is getting at as he talks of not abolishing it but fulfilling it. Fulfilling the Old Testament scriptures. So that's point number one. Secondly, Jesus came to bring about true righteousness in his people. So having established then the abiding authority of the Old Testament scriptures, in verse 19, Jesus makes an inference from this. He makes a point deriving from this. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. So if the law must be accomplished and the Old Testament has abiding authority, then Jesus draws an inference here then the commands and the demands of God's law cannot in any way be lessened. So we've moved here from Jesus speaking of the law and the prophets together, verse 17, to just the law in verse 18. 
And now he refers to these commandments. So it seems he's maybe moving a little more narrow as we get to verse 18 and 19. From the law and the prophets, the law, to now these commandments. Now what commandments does he have in mind? Well, so far in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus has not given any commandments. However, he's about to. Not just give commandments, but he's about to interact with and explain some commandments beginning in verse 20, 21. Namely, he's going to interact with the Ten Commandments, the moral law. And throughout Matthew, when Jesus uses this word, speaks of the commandments, he is speaking of the Ten Commandments. He's speaking of the moral law. And we don't have time to go there, but if you're curious, the clear examples of this in chapter 15, verses 3 to 4, chapter 19, verse 17, in chapter 22, verses 36 to 40, every time this word is used, the commandments, it's then explicitly clear afterwards that he's speaking of the Ten Commandments. And I think that's the same here, given what he goes into in verse 21, when he begins to talk about, you shall not murder, and on he goes, through to the end of chapter 5. So he's saying that if the Old Testament scriptures are not abolished, then we can in no way relax the commandments. We can in no way relax the moral law of God. And this makes perfect sense, really. Because God's perfection has not changed. His righteousness has not changed. His standards of righteousness have not changed. Because God himself does not change. It would be impossible if his standards were to change. And so if you lessen God's absolute holiness, you relax his laws and you teach others to do the same, then Jesus condemns this by saying you are least in the kingdom of heaven. Now, I don't think this means that we should picture the kingdom as having various classes of citizens. I think it seems, as uh, one commentator says on this, he writes that to be called great or small in the kingdom of heaven means to be high or low in God's esteem, to be a more or less worthy representative of those who acknowledge him as king. In other words, it's just really, I think, saying that God is not pleased if someone relaxes his law and teaches others to do the same. Rather, whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Now, once more, what this is not saying, this is not saying that the old covenant, that the law as a covenant will remain forever in force. Again, there is a new covenant Jesus has come to bring about in his blood. There will be changes with that, necessarily. Uh, Hebrews, again, is very good with this. Uh, in fact, chapter 8, verse 13 even tells us that it, it, the old covenant becomes obsolete in light of Christ and what he has come. All those prefigures that we talked about and more, the types 
There are shadows that fall away now that the substance, the Lord Jesus Christ, has arrived. There are changes when we get to the new covenant. But the moral standards of God that we find within that old covenant do not pass away. They are not lessened in the new covenant. In fact, if anything, what Jesus is going to make clear here in the rest of chapter 5 is that the moral law of God is more excellent and exacting than most people have ever given thought or realized. And and we're going to look at this over the next several weeks as we go through chapter 5. We might, well, why is this such a big deal? Why is it such a big deal that we we maintain this high standard of of, of righteousness? That we, we don't lessen the laws, the moral law of God. Well, I think Jesus helps us understand this in verse 20. What's on the line? What's at stake here? After stressing the importance of upholding the commandments, Jesus says in verse 24, so he's giving a reason now for what he just said in verse 19. I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees, the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. It is crucial to understand the moral law of God, that we might understand what righteousness is and what it isn't because only people who have true righteousness are inside the kingdom of heaven. Now, this verse alone could be the sermon. There's a lot here. We could have many sermons on it. This could all have been introduction to now. So we're not going to cover everything that could be said here but we'll do what we can. And I want to begin by considering the scribes and the Pharisees for a moment. Because it's very clear here that their righteousness, their view of righteousness, their concept of righteousness, and their practice of righteousness is totally insufficient and actually leaves them outside of the kingdom of heaven. The scribes and Pharisees are mistaken about God's moral law. They're mistaken about what righteousness is and they're not in the kingdom as a result. It's at least part of their problem. The scribes were supposedly experts in the law and the Pharisees were the strictest sect in Judaism when it came to keeping that law. There would have been overlap between these two groups. Many scribes were also Pharisees. And so these are those who are seen in Jesus' day as being the holiest of people, the most advanced, the most righteous. And so this statement of Christ, your righteousness must exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees or you will not enter. This would have been stunning to hear him say this. How in the world Is this possible? There is nobody, this is what it would seem, whose righteousness would exceed the details and the the attention to the minutia of detail when it comes to trying to obey externally the law than these Pharisees and scribes. 
There is no one who exceeds this. What Jesus is going to go on to reveal as he begins to explain more the law in verse 21 through to the end of the chapter is that the Pharisees had a focus upon an external sort of righteousness, an external religion, and not an internal one. Here's what he says in Matthew 23. Later in the gospel, as Jesus confronts the Pharisees, in Matthew 23, 27, he says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, same group, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear, appear righteous to others. But within, you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. That's the issue. They are whitewashed tombs. They're hanging fresh fruit on dead trees and they're calling that healthy as if the tree is healthy. Their concept of righteousness was completely and utterly flawed and false such that it warrants Jesus' incredibly harsh condemnation but fair and accurate. Whitewashed tombs appearing righteous to others, but being full of lawlessness within. In fact, while they appear to have a very high view of God's law, in fact, their view of God's law was far too low. They neglected the heart, and as Jesus would say elsewhere, the weightier matters of the law. And so what does Jesus mean when he speaks of that we must exceed their righteousness? One writer makes the point, clearly Jesus is not saying that we need to beat the scribes and Pharisees at their own game. That we just really need more external righteousness. We just need a few more rules that we add to these laws to keep the Sabbath a little better. You, You haven't got enough rules yet. That's that's not what he's saying. Rather, we need a different sort of righteousness. You might ask, well, what sort of righteousness that is? And many would respond, and I, I hope for many of us, your minds start to go here. Well, we need the imputed righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. The perfect righteousness of Christ that he has earned in his earthly coming. That's what we need. We need that credited to our account. For as we, as we know, it is this that justifies a sinner. This is true. This is most gloriously true. And some do take what Jesus is saying here. In that way, that this is what Jesus is implying. You need my righteousness credited to your account. If you think of Philippians chapter 3, we were there not that long ago. When Paul considered his pharisaical life and his efforts at righteousness 
external righteousness. This is where he ends up. He, he says he gladly renounced that and considered all those efforts as rubbish and garbage compared to being found in Christ, having a righteousness that comes by faith in Christ, not from works of the law. A righteousness that's credited to his account as a gift of God's grace. However, I don't think that is what Christ is speaking of here. That is true. But I believe the righteousness of which Christ is speaking here is the sanctification that comes by the Spirit of God. He is pointing us again to the need to be born again. The need of having a new heart that now possesses new desires, a hunger and a thirst for righteousness, a true righteousness that flows ultimately from that new heart. And so if I could summarize verse 20, I think what it's saying is, unless your righteousness exceeds the Pharisees, that is, unless you've been sanctified by the Spirit of God from within, unless you've received the new heart with the law of God now written upon your heart, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of God on the last day. Now this is, again, helpful to to know what this does not mean. This is not saying that your sanctification will be the reason that you make it into heaven, that you will make it into the kingdom of God. It is not saying that is the grounds of your entry or the grounds of your right standing with God. That is, in fact, the imputed righteousness of Christ that comes by faith and not by any work. Rather, what's behind these words here is the reality that the sanctification... That sanctification will be the fruit and evidence of your saving faith. That is, he's again describing here the character of his people and the kind of righteousness that we're hungering and thirsting for. Remember, that's how the Beatitudes have begun. The sermon has begun. He's describing the character of those who are in the kingdom of heaven, the character of those who belong to him. There are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. Again, This demands the new birth. And now he is beginning to get to what is that righteousness that we hunger after. And he's going to explain that as we continue through chapter 5. And it is not simply this external Pharisaic display where we just, hey, here's a list of a bunch of things and as long as you just don't walk so many steps, then you've kept the Sabbath and you fulfilled the law. Congratulations, you are righteous. That's not it. This is what Jesus is getting at. His people will have a true righteousness arising from a new heart. And the reality is, the scriptures teach that nobody will enter the kingdom of God. Nobody will surpass Judgment Day 
who hasn't been born again, who hasn't had some measure of fruit. Nobody will be there who hasn't displayed a true righteousness arising from the new birth. In the Old Covenant, the people of God, the covenant people of God, the nation of Israel, was made up of some who truly did believe and bear good fruit, and it was made up of others who did not. All who were circumcised were part of the covenant people of God. However, Jesus is teaching through this Sermon on the Mount, and right here in these words, that the kingdom of heaven is only entered into by people who have indeed been born again, who have something more than, other than, an external Pharisaic righteousness. Jesus has come to bring forgiveness of sins, to earn the righteousness that justifies sinners by grace through faith alone, But he has also come to make his people righteous. He has not come just to credit his people as righteous, but to make his people righteous. Which is why James can say that faith without deeds is dead. It is not a saving faith. Because... One who is justified by God's grace through faith alone has been born again and this will issue forth in fruit, in good deeds. On the last day, nobody will be admitted who was not made new. And of course, we know the sanctification will have its completion ultimately at the return of the Lord Jesus Christ when he will present to his Father, his church, his people as blameless. Jesus is not teaching legalism here. The legalist should be undone by what he is saying here. The legalist will not measure up. The legalist is what the scribes and Pharisees were. The legalist would like to think he or she has accomplished something that is worthy of God's honor I've done these things. If I submit these works, whatever it is, the Lord will approve of me on that basis. But true righteousness is not that. True righteousness is concerned with motivations. It is concerned with the heart. It arises out of the heart. Just as evil deeds, Jesus says, Mark 7, arise out of the wicked, sinful heart, so too true good deeds arise out of a heart that has been made new. 
And the reality is God's righteous standard is so high. And we're going to see this as we continue through chapter 5. The legalist is crushed by this. It will culminate at the end of chapter 5 with Jesus saying, Be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. So if you would like to take this and say, Well, that I have to do this to earn salvation, that's what you need to do. And of course, you will not do that. Again, the Pharisees thought they were good to go because they had not ever actually physically murdered another person. But as we'll see next week, Jesus will show that hatred is murder of the heart. Great, one has never committed the physical act of adultery. But Jesus will go further, reveal to what the law is truly pointing Lust in the heart is adultery of the heart. Maybe one's never committed physical adultery while married, but on account of these divorces you have and remarriage, adultery has been occurring. He's going to get into these things. Again, culminating in the call to be perfect. It destroys legalism. It destroys placing your hope in your works. And so indeed, this Sermon on the Mount does drive us to our need for Christ's for forgiveness, for salvation that comes from Christ, for a grounding that is secure, much more secure than any of our own efforts. But it also instructs us of the need to be born again, that we might also bear the fruit of sanctification. Jesus came to purify a people for himself. And it is these who belong to the kingdom and shall see God. These are those who have saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. There are a number of other texts that speak very clearly about this, but I I just want to read one from Titus chapter 2. Verse 11. It says, For the grace of God has appeared. The gospel of God's grace has appeared. God saves on account of his graciousness. Christ's righteousness credited to your account because of God's gift of grace to you, received by faith. You're standing with God, secured forever, eternally, because of Christ. God's grace has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to what? Training us to view sin lightly, training us to say, nah, Moral law, Old Testament, nah. Toss it out. Let's continue to sin. For the grace of God has appeared, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. 
Christ's people are not those who are marked simply by a few external nice things and external righteousness. But they're marked by that which is being a true righteousness that is being wrought, being brought about by God's Spirit in the heart. And this really is the primary evidence that a profession of faith is credible. As works are the fruits and evidence of saving faith. Christ is purifying for himself a people. And this purification will have its effect. And though we are far from perfect in this life, the Lord's people are being sanctified, are being made more holy. And again, the Lord will complete this work that he has begun in the end, such that nothing unclean shall enter into the new creation. Anytime we talk about these things, I know that some get troubled by this. Because we start to ask ourselves, do I have enough of that righteousness? And I would just say to you, the person who is truly born again, the newest of believers who was born again yesterday, the fruit that is already theirs, believing in the Lord Jesus, being honest with God about their sinful condition of their heart. They are already having, they're already receiving this work of sanctification. Possessing something far greater than what these scribes and Pharisees had. But we have to deal honestly with this. And the fact is, if your religion is merely some external thing, then this is a warning to you. If when you're alone, you know, you simply desire the world, this is a warning to you. If you just come here because it's expected, whether that's mom or dad or whoever else it might be, Or just you want to, I probably should, so I just do it. Then you should hear this carefully. Do not make the mistake of the Pharisees. Confess this to God. Call out to God for his grace and for his salvation. Again, Jesus has come. To make his people righteous. And he accomplishes this by first, of course, we know he has offered himself as a substitute for sinners, satisfying God's righteous demands in his death for our sins, our failures to live up to God's perfection, his holiness. And in due time, Christ, by his word and his spirit, graciously calls his people out of sin at the preaching of the gospel 
imputes his righteousness to them such that they are justified. And as he does this, his spirit makes that dead sinner alive. And upon faith in him, the believer is not only justified by God's grace, but is truly made new, given the Spirit of God, who, as we read earlier from Jeremiah 31, writes God's law upon the heart. And the Lord begins to sanctify his people. How different this is than what the Pharisees did. How different this is than the legalist. All forms of legalism. Again, our progress in sanctification is not the grounds by which we are admitted into the kingdom. That is the work of the Lord Jesus Christ, His righteousness credited to the believer's account by God's grace through faith. But what Jesus is communicating here, though, is that all those people who have received that truly will also have received sanctification that will reach its culmination on the day of the Lord. And this is why it is right to examine a profession of faith based upon fruit in the life. And we understand it's not going to be a perfect fruit. Paul himself in Philippians 3 spoke of not yet being made perfect, but understanding that that's the end for which Christ has bought him He says, I'm striving for that even now. I think that's perfectly consistent with what Jesus is telling us here. And will continue to teach us through this Sermon on the Mount. And this is how Jesus fulfills the scriptures. This is what it is about. Our triune God is calling a people out of sin and out of darkness into his kingdom. And he is purifying those people for himself who will dwell with him eternally in the new creation in which nothing unclean will be present. No sin. In which the curse will be forever done away with. This is how Jesus fulfills the scriptures. This is the consistent theme all throughout the Bible. All the promises of God are yes in him. So rest your hope in Christ Jesus. See the beauty and the goodness of righteousness. And war, make war with your sin as those redeemed by God's grace, knowing that God's purposes for you are to sanctify you and ultimately to be presented blameless before him one day.
Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your precious word that is consistent, that must come to pass. Father, we confess that we fall short of your righteousness, your glory. In so many ways, externally, we don't measure up, let alone when the law takes aim at our hearts. And yet, Father, as your people, we acknowledge that what your word says is true and is good. And the heart matters. A righteousness that proceeds from within is good and right. Father, we lament that we fall short continually. But we praise you for your work of redemption that you are doing. That Christ has secured this. Thank you that we can rest securely knowing that our advances in holiness are not the grounds upon which we stand before you, but that is completely tied to the work of Christ alone, credited to our account. And we rejoice that though we continue to fall short now, this is not the end for us. You are sanctifying your people with true righteousness Father, I pray we would be encouraged that as we wrestle with our sinful hearts still that are not yet perfected, we would be encouraged that we have not been left to be self-deceived with some external piety, thinking that that is sufficient grounds to please you and satisfy you. Father, thank you for this mercy. Even as we are pained by our flesh, Father, may we lay hold continually of the promises of God that find their yes in Christ. That you are not done with your people. That though it seems impossible some days, you are sanctifying us and will see us through to the end. By your spirit, you are working in us. Father, if any here realize they are deceived, that their piety is just external, it's a show, Bring them to conviction. Help them to rest. Cause them to rest in Christ Jesus. Give them that new heart of flesh that desires now true righteousness from within. Father, we praise you that you are merciful to sinners. We thank you for testimony we've heard even this day of salvation and of new birth, of new desires. Father, encourage us. I pray that you'd lift up our heads. Continue to be with us even now that we might be strengthened as we continue to consider your promises to us as we gather around the Lord's table. In Jesus' name, amen.